I want to invite you to Ephesians chapter 4, where we'll spend our time today. And I hope as we dance along the, the floor of the first 16 verses that you'll look at every one of the verses. Uh, Ephesians 4, 1 to 16. Uh, I'm going to try to guide us through that portion for today's sermon. So be finding that place, but I want to just warn you um, that we have a very straightforward question to ask today in our sermon. And it may seem altogether irrelevant to ask a group of people like you, especially in this setting. Our question is, what is a church? And some of you may be thinking, duh. Well, I wonder how you would respond to that question. If you were standing here and I were sitting there, and you wanted everybody here to understand what God thinks a church is, what would you say? What is a church? Well, today we want to see what God thinks about that question. And this passage that we'll consider reveals four core aspects of God's definition of a church. Let's turn our attention to God's voice, and then we'll walk through those four aspects of God's mind. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you also were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Verse 7, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also. He who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Verse 14, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Let's ask God's help. Oh, Father, we ask, that you would fill this church with the Spirit of Jesus, causing us 
to increasingly look like Ephesians 4, 1 to 16. You know what the passage means. You know what you want our lives to look like. So we ask that we would look like what you said right here. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So for those who are just joining in this uh, little series, we're doing a four-part series as a break from our Gospel of John series. And this four-part series is entitled Bought with His Blood, and we're looking at the doctrine of the church, ecclesiology. The Greek word ekklesia is church, ecclesia. Two weeks ago, we asked, what is the gospel? Last week, we asked, what is a Christian? Today, we're asking, what is the church? And Lord willing, next Sunday, what is the church's mission? So two weeks ago, what is the gospel? We looked at 1 Corinthians 15, and God's answer to that question in that passage and the broadness of Scripture is the good news, the gospel is an announcement, it is news, it is a message that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He rose again from the dead on the third day according to the Scriptures. That is the good news. Last week, from 2 Corinthians 5, we asked, what is a Christian? And in summary, we said, a Christian is someone who is in Christ. Well, how do you get there? A Christian is in Christ because by God's doing, they have repented from their sin. They have trusted by faith in the person and in the gospel labors of the Lord Jesus Christ for forgiveness of our sins, past, present, future, and reconciliation with God. That's a Christian. And today, we're asking, what is a church? Well, as our catechism said just a few moments ago, it asked the question, what is a church? And the answer that was read for us is, a church is an assembly of baptized believers joined by a covenant of discipline and witness who meet together regularly under the preaching of the Word of God. I think that's a fine answer to that catechism question. Well, today we're going to let Ephesians 4 answer it in very similar, not identical, but similar verbiage. Ephesians 4 expands on the question, what is a church? But we want to ask what God thinks a church is, and first, according to God, a local church is, all these are really wordy, all four parts, and they'll just build one on the other, so at the end, we have one long Ephesians 4 answer. First, verses 1 to 6, a church is a mutually accountable collection of saved and baptized sinners who have been called by Christ to belong to the one true God. That's what verses 1 to 6 is about. One more time. A church is, according to verses 1 to 6, a mutually accountable collection of saved and baptized sinners who have been called by Christ to belong to the one true God. Let's just walk it out. First, a mutually accountable collection of saved sinners. I get collection from verses 1 and 4, and I get it from the second person plural pronouns. What I mean, to put it in southern fried English, this passage is not written to you. It's written to y'all. They're all second person plural. Verse 1, therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you. That's y'all. That's plural. 
I, incur, I implore you all, verse 1, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you all have been called. Verse 4, there is one body and one spirit just as you all were called in one hope of y'all's calling. That's where I get it. So, we are a collection. But I also said we are a mutually accountable collection. We're not just a random collection. So, a church is not any place that a bunch of y'all Christians happen to be together. A church is a mutually accountable collection. Our, our Taste in the Truth Catechism said, an assembly of baptized believers joined by a covenant of discipline and witness. An agreement, we will be discipled, discipline, formative discipline. We will all submit to ongoing transformation by the Word of God, by the Spirit of God together. Nobody gets to stay the same. We all have to be being changed. That's discipline. There's also corrective discipline when somebody won't repent of sin, even if they're called to account. And so they are then excommuned from that accountable fellowship. But we're joined by a covenant. So a collection, the y'all, verse 1 and 4, of mutually accountable. Well, where do I get mutually accountable? In this passage, it's seen in, the, in that the whole church, without exception for any one of its members, is being commanded by God in this text to obey all of His instructions in this text. So in this case, the letter's written to the church at Ephesus. Paul spent three and a half years with them, then Timothy became their pastor, then the apostle John became their pastor, and then the risen Jesus said to them in the first chapters of Revelation, they lost their first love. But it's written to a church. That's where I get mutually accountable because in Ephesians 4, 1 to 16, all of the instruction is we, us, plural. Let me say that best way I know how. Every single command and exhortation in this passage is for every Christian to obey. Nobody gets a pass. That's the mutual accountability. So unless you are in some meaningful way accountable to a congregation, and unless you collect or assemble or church ecclesia with them regularly, then you are in no way walking in compliance with what God says a church is in Ephesians, 1, Ephesians 4, 1 to 16, or any other text. And when I say any other text, I mean, I looked up and was very tempted to read to you, but we don't have time, 59 one another commands in the New Testament. 59 times plus, because several of them are repeated, God says, every Christian such and such one another, and so and so one another, and do this with one another, and that with one another, and this toward one another. Love one another, forbear with one another, consider one another more important than yourself. You can't obey one of them, let alone all 59 of them, unless you are in an ongoing, mutually accountable relationship with them. So we say a lot around here things like this. Salvation is very personal. You must individually meet Jesus and belong to Him. But salvation is never private. 
That's the one another aspect. So, a collection, y'all, of mutually accountable, all the commands and exhortations in the passage. But I said, it is a mutually accountable collection of saved and baptized sinners who have been called by Christ to belong to the one true God. So far, we've dealt with mutually accountable collection. What about baptized sinners who have been called by Christ to belong to the one true God? That's all in verses 1 to 6. Well, let's just look at it. The called by Christ part is in verse 1. The belonging to the one true God part is in verses 4 to 6. So is the baptism part. Look at those who have been called by Christ. There's two aspects to his calling. The first is in verse 1. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Who, who, who dialed your name and number? Who, who called you? Jesus did. The calling of Christ upon a Christian entails two aspects. His initial call and his continual call. Paul talked about the initial call in chapter 1, where God from eternity past purposed to save you. The Son in time was sent to accomplish the Father's plan to save you, and the Spirit in application has brought to your life the work of the Son according to the plan of the Father to make you God's child, Ephesians 1.13, when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed, that's when you were saved. That's Christ's initial call. Every Christian called by Christ. That's the initial call. Paul's not talking about that. Paul's talking about the continual call. If he saved you, he is saving you. If you're saved, you are being saved. That's what Paul's talking about. It's in verses 2 to 3. And Jesus is saying this to you right now if you're a Christian. He's saying at least five things must be present in your obedience to him. It's right in the passage. First, humility. That's in verse 2. All humility. Humility is Jesus calling you to have His character increasingly formed in your life. It's ongoing dependence upon the Holy Spirit manifesting in glad-hearted service to Jesus and the advance of His gospel. That's what humility is. Humility is not being soft-spoken. Humility is not having a deferential spirit. Humility is surrender to Jesus and service in His work. It's a dependence and an obedience. Paul uses the same word for humility to the pastors of this church, church at Ephesus, when he met with them in Acts 20, and he said to them, you yourselves know from the first day I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time serving the Lord, here it comes, with all humility. What'd that look like? Tears. Even when trials came upon me through the plots of the Jews, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to Jews and Greeks, repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus. That's humility. It's what it looks like. And Jesus is calling you to that. Number two, he's calling you to gentleness. That's in verse two. He initially called you to salvation. He's continually calling you to obey him, to follow him. 
Gentleness in verse 2 is the same word Paul uses in uh, Galatians 5 in his list of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. One of the marks of the Spirit of Jesus at work in a believer's life and in a local church is increasing gentleness in all the people. You know, this is hard to quantify, isn't it? Let me try to put to you how hard it is to quantify. Are you more gentle toward other Christians in this church today than you were six months ago? How do you measure it? How do you quantify it? You can't say, that's just not who I am. It's not how God made me. As you spend more time with Jesus... He doesn't change, you do. And he said of himself, he's gentle, Matthew 11. And he's calling you to be like him. But not only humble and gentle, but patient. Like gentleness, the word for patience in verse 2 is something Jesus is calling you to right now. It's also in the list of the fruits of the Holy Spirit in Galatians 5.22. And the lexicon that I looked at for what is patience? What's biblical patience? Answer, the state of being able to bear up under provocation. You may not be familiar with that word right now, provocation. This, This kind of patience is when somebody does or says something that you don't like. It's easy to be patient when everybody agrees with you. But this kind of patience is even when you're being provoked to impatience. That's what it looks like to obey the calling of Jesus as you live out Christianity in the context of a local church. He's calling you to that. Number four, verse two, not only humility, gentleness, and patience, but showing tolerance for one another in love. The word for showing tolerance, oh, it's so beautiful. This is what it looks like for the spirit of Jesus in the lives of Christians in a local church. It's really the sacred place that everybody, Christian or not, deep down wishes that he or she could live. What I'm saying to you is I may not know a lot about you, but I do know this. You want people to do this to you. You want them to show tolerance to you. What does that mean? It's that sacred, blissful almost jittery place of being fully known and fully loved. That's tolerance. Here's what I mean. We think if people know us, they won't love us. And we're all apprehensive to believe that it's actually even possible. But that's the definition of the gospel. God knows you more than you know yourself and he loves you more deeply than you can possibly imagine. And that kind of tolerance is to show up in the life of a congregation. The New Testament, uh, I'm sorry, the New American Standard translates it showing tolerance for one another in love. The King James says forbearing with one another. The ESV and NIV say bearing with one another. But my all-time favorite rendering of this phrase is in the New Living Translation. And I don't just like it best because I think it sounds the best. I think they've captured very faithfully what Paul intends for us to understand. How do they put it? NLT, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Isn't that beautiful? It's unity without uniformity. That's it. Being called by Jesus looks like that. 
If you're called to him in salvation, you're called to his people in tolerance. This is not to be weaponized like it so often is in our day by the person receiving the tolerance. Did you notice the command's not to the person receiving it, it's the person giving it? You and I cannot wield this verse as a weapon to remain in our sin. God said, you've got to make allowance for my faults if you really love me. No. Anybody can justify any sinful behavior if that's the direction of the command. But the instruction is to you all be patiently, gently loving toward others who are at fault as you all seek to help one another follow Jesus more faithfully. It's not even close to an excuse to live in sin or for you to tell others to stop judging you. It's actually part of God's way to help you fight sin and grow in personal holiness as you receive this kind of loving allowance or tolerance from your brothers and sisters who know you, know your faults, know your weaknesses, and still agape, that's the word, love. This is where I get the mutual accountability part of our description. By the way, point one's our big point, and the two, three, and four are little points. Fifth, we're in verse three, to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. It's not only what a church does, that's, that's what a church is, gospel truth with gospel culture. The Savior comes and the Savior saturates. This is diligence to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Boy, oh boy, if there's been a contentious verse in the past year, it's this one. Masks or no masks? Vax or no vax? Red or blue? Your view on race or mine? Or his or hers or theirs? Are we called by the king of the ages to tribalize into churches that'll raise whatever flag up the pole of whatever contemporary issue most tickles my itching ears? This phrase means we're all to work together to depend upon the Holy Spirit so as to live in peace. The bond of peace. It's referring to the precious blood-bought peace that Jesus one on the cross of Calvary. Two chapters earlier, Ephesians 2, Paul labors this point that Jews and Gentiles, if there ever been a division in human history among ethnicities, there you go. That Jews and Gentiles are both reconciled to God and to one another through the gospel work the bloody death of Jesus. He has removed all hostility between all Christians as He has removed that hostility between individuals and God. So here's the principle. We say this in marriage counseling, pre-marriage counseling all the time. You've heard this kind of stuff. There is an axis. It is like a triangle. The closer you get to God, the closer you will get to one another. And maybe the problem's not everybody else. Maybe I'm not diligently preserving the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace by my distance from the Savior. The hostility, Ephesians 2, is objectively gone. 
It doesn't say create peace in chapter 4. It says preserve it. This is a peace that overflows because the gospel's at work in your heart. The fruit of that overflow is walking in unity with the Lord and with his people. The preserving of this unity requires hard work. That's why Paul says diligence. It means, here's the range of meaning of the word diligent. Be especially conscientious in discharging this obligation. Be zealous and eager. Take pains. Make every effort. Be on purpose. It doesn't just accidentally happen. And I promise you, there are a lot of people outside the church who want us to be ripped apart at the seams. And unfortunately, we find in God's Word, that's not unfortunate, but we find that there are people oftentimes inside the church who want to pull at the fabric. That's why you got to work at it. So to put our first point all together, in all of our relationships, in a church, we are to humbly, gently, patiently, making allowance for others' faults, because we agape them, purposely, conscientiously, zealously, eagerly take pains to make every effort by the Holy Spirit's power to be unified with our brothers and sisters because we're all saved by the same Jesus. That's a gospel culture filled with the spirit of the risen Jesus who saved all the individuals in the church. But there's one final part of our first point that I want to show you where I got it. I said a local church, according to verses 1 to 6, is a mutually accountable, tried to show you that, collection, tried to show you that, of those who have been called by Christ, tried to show you that, I haven't yet shown you, to belong to the one true God. That's verses 4 to 6. One body, one spirit, one hope of your calling. Verse 5, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Verse 6, one God and Father of all. We see here that our pursuit of unity in the spirit of pursuit of unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, verse 3, is grounded in a reality. Why should we work hard to preserve unity? Answer, verse 4 to 6, ground, reason, foundation, because of a perfectly united God. The church is to pursue unity with one another because our God is perfectly unified and His Son has unified us to Himself and to each other. Verse 5, one Lord, one faith. Here's where I get the baptism part. One baptism in the one name of the one true God, verse 6. He is, verse 6, the God and Father of all. There are no other gods. This is, of course, the, the baptism point when In the New Testament, someone comes to faith in Jesus. The Bible shows us one consistent pattern without exception. The New Testament teaches that when people come to faith in Jesus, they are to be baptized one time, post-conversion, by immersion, in the context of a gospel-proclaiming church. Why? Because Jesus didn't give the authority to me to baptize anybody. He didn't give it to pastors or parents or individuals or auxiliary ministries or parachurch organizations or groups, subsets of churches that go on trips together and somebody gets saved or your college roommates. He didn't give baptism to anybody but the church. 
Jesus has given the ordinance of baptism to the local church. He hasn't authorized me to baptize. He's authorized her to perform biblical baptism. To use precise terminology, baptism is a local church ordinance. Baptism portrays the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The Lord's Supper also portrays the cross and resurrection of Jesus. These two ordinances were given by the risen Jesus to his churches as emblems of our unity with God and our unity with one another. So, in the New Testament, everybody passes through the same doorway into membership in the church. That doorway is public profession of faith in Jesus through baptism. That's the door in. And we all gather at the same table as our ongoing sign of fellowship with Jesus and each other through the Lord's Supper. Those are the two ordinances. So when hardships arise in Christian relationships in the church, we're to do something, pursue unity, do it diligently. And when precious unity is enjoyed, we are still to diligently work to preserve it together, helping one another grow in the faith. Time out. Everybody's like, yeah, sure, of course, another Sunday, another sermon, blah, blah, blah. Who are you helping grow in their faith in this church? What's her name? What's his name? Verses four to six could be summarized that way. We belong to the same spirit. We got the same hope in the same Lord with the same faith and the same baptism and the same God and Father and we're to diligently seek to preserve unity. So number one, and I promise two, three, and four are just gonna spring right off of it. A church, according to God, is a mutually accountable collection of saved and baptized sinners who have been called by Jesus Christ to belong to the one true God. Verses seven to 12 is number two. called by Jesus Christ to belong to the one true God who are filled with Christ's resurrection power for mutual upbuilding. This is verses 7 to 12. Paul leans on Psalm 68. And what he teaches in verses 7 to 12 is that when Jesus got up from the grave and overcame sin and death and Satan, after he ministered on earth for a period of 40 days following his resurrection, he ascended to heaven. And from his ascended, exalted position as the king of the universe, he's doing something for the church. Namely, verses 7 to 12, giving her gifts. It's not all he's doing. In Revelation 4, he's receiving all the worship of all Christians and all of heaven. In Romans 8, he's praying for every individual Christian. In 1 Timothy 2, he's advocating to the Father on the basis of his gospel victory for all who he's brought into salvation. In 1 John 2, he's forgiving every Christian sin who come and confess that. He's doing a lot of stuff from his throne. One thing he's doing, according to this passage, from his exalted place as the king of the universe, is he's giving gifts to every single congregation that's a true church. And the gifts are not things, they're people. It's you. The people he's giving are apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. These are gifts of the risen Jesus for the upbuilding of the church. I would like to say something about all of these. I believe I'll uh, serve everybody best for today by summarizing what I, skip, 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 would have said. The apostolic age ended with the close of the canon. When the Bible was completed, no more apostles. I believe the prophetic ministry is still ongoing according to 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, and everybody in the church has that gift. 
because 1 Corinthians 12 14 says, when you all prophesy, well, how do you do that? God's not a God of confusion. It says that in the same passage that says you all prophesy. So how do you do it? I think it happens in times like where we all sing glorious gospel truth and extol the character of God together. 1 Corinthians 14 says, lost people will come in and hear you all prophesy, and they'll fall on their face and say, man, God is here. Surely God is among you. I think prophecy happens interpersonally, not by fortune-telling, telling the future, but boldly declaring the truth of the gospel, speaking God's word into the lives of his people for their edification. I could say more about that. Evangelists are those who are Christ's gifts to congregations to help equip churches to tell the good news of the gospel to our perishing neighbors and to the nations. Pastors and teachers are those who are gifts of Jesus to every church to unfold scripture for the edification of the saints. But he tells us why. Why is he giving such gifts to every church? It's right there in verse 12. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. Jesus is giving gifts to his churches so that his churches will be more built up in him. I've noticed a common denominator for personal sanctification in any church I've ever been acquainted with. I've been on staff at a few and members of more, and I have relationships with lots. But I've noticed a common denominator. Any member of any church who's growing in the faith consistently over time There's a very obvious common denominator. Those individuals are faithfully immersing their lives in the ecclesia. They don't just attend a thing, an event, they're part of the body. And the risen Jesus, we're told right here, wants every single member to be equipped to serve his people. So I ask again, who are you pushing up into Jesus? What's her name? What's his name? So I'm saying number one, verse one to six, a mutually accountable collection of saved and baptized sinners who have been called by Christ to belong to the one true God. And number two, verses seven to 12, who are each filled with Christ's resurrection power for mutual upbuilding. Number three, verse 13, for the attaining of Christ's likeness in every member. All right, our covenant's hard to memorize. It's long. So I'll give you one little phrase. Here's our job as church members of this or any church. Your job is to help every member become more like Christ. That's the job. That's verse 13. That's what a true church is and does. Jesus has a specific goal in the lives of all of his people. He's chasing a particular prize in your life. He wants all of his people to be conformed to his likeness. Increasing Christ's likeness in every member of every church is what Jesus wants. I love verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. If you've not meditated much on this verse, I commend it to you. Make it your mental cud this week. Roll it over and over and over. Bathe it in prayer this week, in your mind and in your heart. Wonderful verse to memorize so that we can pray it over this church. This is the goal of Jesus in every church. This is what Jesus is up to 
in Christians. This is why the church is essential to any Christian reaching the goal that Jesus desires to accomplish in our life. Meaning, I can't enjoy what Jesus wants me to experience by myself. I need you and we need to be immersed together in this mutually accountable relationship to our Savior so that this can happen in my life. I can't get there without you. And you can't get there without us. Question, what does Jesus most want his people to enjoy in life? Numero uno. Answer, as much likeness to Jesus as a saved sinner can attain on this side of eternity. Is that your goal? Not some likeness to Jesus sporadically. Much likeness to Jesus continually. Do you want that? I asked, are you, you know, more gentle now than you were six months ago? How do you quantify it? Well, how do you quantify it? Are you more like Jesus today than you were a year ago? You know what I think the Bible's answer to that question is? You can't detect it. But we can. People know. People know if you're turning from self-centered pride, me-centric, make my deal with God, I'll do it. You, you go on with all that holy, I'll do it my way. People know if you're repenting of that, who know you well. That's why you gotta be known. And that's why you gotta know. What would likeness to Christ look like in your life? Would you just look at verse 13 for an embarrassingly brief amount of time? Verse 13, A, B, C, D, and E. 13A, until we all. That means you have a concern for the entire body, not only yourself. So I asked a moment ago, what's her name? What's his name? Who are you pushing up into Christ? I'm not asking that anymore. I'm asking, how are you pushing every member up into the fullness of Jesus. That's verse 13a. All, we all, we all. Everybody's got to go closer to Christ. Everybody's got to get pushed up. I'm getting under everybody. We're all going together. That's our calling. B, attain to the unity of the faith. That means all believers in the congregation unified in a common Christocentricity. Jesus is the only object of saving faith. So unity of the faith means everybody is riveted to Jesus. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. 13c. Until we attain not only the unity of the faith, but also, I love this, why does Paul use this phrase? Because it's unique in Ephesians, the knowledge of the Son of God. He didn't say Christ, didn't say Jesus, he could have said that. That means that all believers in the church are growing in our experiential fellowship with the true Jesus. It isn't just a knowledge of mental ascent, like you might know some information. This is experiential knowledge. It's a knowledge of relationship. Do you know a person, the Son of God? Are you increasing in your knowing of the Son of God? Well, that's far too personal a question, and I just ripped that verse right out of its context, and I hope you would understand what I mean by that before I even correct myself. That's not the question of the verse. Are you increasing in your knowledge of the Son of God? 
It's asking a congregational question. Are you helping others know the Son of God and increase in that precious knowledge of Jesus? That's verse 13c. Verse 13d, to a mature man, that's the word teleos, complete, mature, whole. And 13e, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. This is what we're talking about last Sunday, all of Christ in all of life. Christ filling not only you, but all of our lives. Can I encourage you to take a risk to initiate proactively, not receive reactively, seeking to make someone else happy in Jesus with whom you have had no such relationship in this congregation heretofore. Would you pray about initiating a pursuit of a member heretofore you've never had such a relationship with to encourage them to enjoy the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And the reason I would do such a thing from a pulpit is because verse 13 is in the Bible. Is this your aim? How are you pursuing helping others be more filled up with Christ in this church? What a verse, what a savior. So what's a biblical church? Verse one to six, a mutually accountable collection of saved and baptized sinners who have been called by Christ to belong to the one true God. Verses 7 to 12, who are each filled with Christ's resurrection power for mutual upbuilding. Verse 13, that we may attain Christ's likeness together, every member, until we all. Verse 14 to 16, as the whole body grows up together into Christ. A deep, prayer-driven, humble dive into verses 14, 14 to 16 would cure a thousand ills in today's church culture. This portion of Ephesians 4 is teaching us that God's will for churches is that the whole body, the whole body, the whole body grow up together into Christ. Verse 15, that's very similar to verse 13. I believe this is expanding on the how. How, how do we grow up into Christ? That's why I asked you to prayerfully consider initiating Christocentric relationships. Because verse 15 tells you how. How do we grow up into all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ? Verse 14 is the negative. No extended adolescence. It's okay for new Christians to be on milk. It's not okay for 30-year-old Christians to still be on a bottle. That's not good. That's abnormal. It's stunted growth. So verse 14 tells us how. Protect yourself from getting rocked by every new breeze in the cultural theological wind. Don't be so gullible that you're so easily tricked by what the verse says is ill-motivated people who refine their craft to deceive you better with their scheming. Would you please stop listening to aberrant theology? That's verse 14. That's, that's part of the way we help each other grow up into Christ. And if you don't embed your life in a congregation, you won't know. You know why people believe lies? Because they believe them. You can't know that you can't see unless you embed your life in people who are seeing Jesus. 
You're easy prey for the devil if you're doing it by yourself. So embed your life, no long range your Christian walk, or you will be tossed around by the latest error that emerges on the scene. But people who are maturing in Christ, because they have embedded their life in a church like we're describing, are stabilized through the storms of false doctrine. They don't get blown off course, tossed around is what God said, because they're buttressed. How do you, how do you, get, how do you get deep roots? First Timothy 3, the church of the living God is the pillar and buttress of the truth. Verse 15 gives us another how. How will we stay the course? How will we be helped? How will we help one another to keep our eyes on Jesus when the trickery of sinister, deceitful men try to turn our gaze from the Lord of glory? How will we keep our eyes on Jesus? If you hadn't been distracted or hadn't been pursued with distraction for something or somebody or a bunch of some things and somebodies to try to get your eyes off Jesus, I don't know what world you're living in. It's constant. It's an onslaught. How will we keep our eyes on Jesus? Verse 15, this is what a church is for, speaking the truth in love. We grow up in all aspects into him who is the head. We've touched on this verse a few times over the past year because of its relevance in, in the midst of our divisive culture over so many polarizing issues. We continue to see that so many who say true things that every Christian would agree with do so in a way that is in violation of God's good command in verse 15. It's a participle, an ing word, but it's meant imperatively. It is a command. The truth is to be spoken to one another in a congregation. Newsflash you're not the pastor of the internet, and I am not either. We are accountable to one another before God as members of a congregation purchased by the blood of Jesus. So the truth is to be spoken to one another. But that's not what the verse says. It's in love, not as love. It is not obedience to God to bludgeon people with his truth. It's actually harmful to do that. The truth itself has to be incarnated in the life and heart of a Christian so deeply that it's transformed your heart first so that when it comes out of your lips, it's laced, verse 15 uses the word agape, in gospel love. You're not going to argue anybody into the kingdom. But the Spirit will use you and your mouth to tell His truth with gospel love in a way that helps transform believers more into the image of Christ. So how will we know if we are telling the truth in love, not as love? How will we know if we're obeying verse 15 or bludgeoning people with correct doctrine? The verse tells us. It'll be evident by the fruit. The people over whom or among whom, that's better, the people among whom you have a truth-telling influence. Are they growing up more and more and more and more into the likeness of Christ our head? Are people becoming more like Jesus because of your use of the Bible? That's what a church is for. You don't zing people into the truth. You don't gotcha. There's no swagger in Christianity. If your heart's filled with the love of Christ, you'll be broken. 
When you see something that's out of compliance with the Lordship of Jesus, you'll hit your knees in prayer, you'll search God's Word, and you will seek to draw people in. Do you know just like there are ages in life chronologically, there are stages of maturity and sanctification? It's okay for everybody not to be where you now are. But instead of pointing at them and kicking them when they're down, can we please help them and pull them along into the likeness of Jesus? That's verse 15. If you win an argument in the church but lose the person because you lack Christ's agape for them, then you lost the war. You're actually disobeying the God that you masquerade to be representing because you're fighting against the purposes of Christ for whom you claim to speak. Verse 14 and 15, I believe this is the principle and where I close. Jesus can grow any Christian in the faith without my help. He doesn't need me. He can grow any Christian in likeness to Christ without your help. And the reason I said a moment ago, would you pray about initiating? Is because I know this much is true. For all the warts and flaws and cracks and dings and weaknesses in this church, I do know this. You can't be here very long as a member without somebody trying to encourage you in Christ. I know that because I've received that. Times without number. Jesus can grow any Christian without me and without you. But in his all-wise sovereignty, he has decided to use you to help others in your congregation grow more in likeness to Jesus and the primary tool that he has given us to help our brothers and sisters, which he could have done without us, is love-saturated truth-speaking. This is Christian Discipleship 101. And Christians are called to this expression of God-honoring church life, all of us. So the passage ends, verse 16, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by whatever joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Do you see those phrases? The whole body, every joint, each individual. That's why I've been asking on repeat, what's his name? What's her name? But that's too isolated for this glorious congregational passage. How are you helping the whole body as you as an individual joint and each individual is seeking to cause the growth of the whole body to be built up in gospel love? I love the from whom at the beginning of verse 16. If you just go back to 15, that's, that's Jesus. Just like verses 11 and 12, the ascended Jesus is giving people. In verse 16, the ascended Jesus is, is giving people, but he's filling each of the people with all that they need to do exactly what he or she is called by Jesus to do to help others in their congregation become more like Christ. That, that's God's mind for what a church looks like. Not just gospel truth, but a gospel culture So to put the whole picture together, here's the definition. A biblical church is, verse 1 to 6, a mutually accountable collection of saved and baptized sinners who have been called by Christ to belong to the one true God. 
verse 7 to 12, who are each, each filled with Christ's resurrection power for mutual upbuilding. Verse 13, unto the attaining of Christ-likeness in every member. And verses 14 to 16, as the whole body grows up together into Christ. Now, you don't need to remember that definition, you know, but you do need to continually peer into verses 1 to 16 and ask Jesus to make our church look like that. So here's the application. Number one, if you are a Christian and are not a member of a local church, you are called to graft your life into one of them. October 3, 10, 17, and 24, the four Sundays of October, right here at 915 in one of the auxiliary classrooms, we will have our membership seminar. It doesn't commit you to anything. It tells you who we are, what we believe, what we believe a church is. I encourage you to pray about coming to that if you are a Christian and are not a member of the church. Our process for membership is threefold. Introduce, acquaint, covenant. Introduce is a handshake. We introduce, you introduce. The way we introduce is our class. This is who we are. This is our name. The way you introduce is your member introduction form. You write out your testimony, how God's been working in your life, how we can pray for you. That's introduction. Acquaint is way more personal. Not a class, not paper. We sit down face to face and we talk about the Savior. How he's at work in your life. How we can pray for each other. That's a quaint. And then covenant is at the completion of that process. Our elders recommend to our congregation prospects for church membership. And the whole church affirms the Lord's will for people to be added to our fellowship who have a biblical profession of faith and have been baptized in the name of Jesus. So if you're not a Christian, I encourage you to pray about coming. It doesn't commit you to this church In fact, the first lesson is, we'll help you find other churches in the area if this is not the one for you. Number two, the last application is if you're not a Christian. It is my distinct privilege to let you know that you can become one right now, right here. How, pastor, I would love to become a Christian. You must repent of your sin and your self-centered pride. You can't hang on to that for which Jesus died. You must also turn to the risen Jesus. You can do that while I'm talking, just in your heart to God. Yes, 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 that, that me, now, Lord, me, all of this right here, right now. You turn from your sin and all your self-centered pride. You trust Jesus alone, the risen Jesus, to forgive you of all your sin and to reconcile you to God. That's how you become a Christian. If you give your life to Jesus, then you are called by Him to give your life to one of His churches so that you can grow in the faith and likeness to Christ and help other Christians do the same. Well, may the Lord cause every member of Grace Church to increasingly look like Ephesians 4, 1 to 16.